You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. I am super excited for today's guest. From pro snowboarder to money mogul, Chris Nagel has dedicated his life to being America's number one money mentor. Chris has built and owned over 16 companies with his businesses being featured in Forbes, ABC, House Hunters, and his very own HGTV and to pilot in 2018. He is currently the founder of The Money School, which teaches you to be your own bank and the private money club the dating site for private money lenders or borrowers. As an innovator and visionary in wealth building and real estate, he empowers entrepreneurs, business owners, and real estate investors with the knowledge of money, how it works, so they can solve their money problems as well as take control of their money. Chris is also a nationally recognized speaker, author, and podcast host. He has spoken to and taught over tens of thousands of Americans, delivering the financial knowledge that fuels lasting freedom. I want to welcome Chris Noggle to Making Bank today. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, honored, man. Thanks for having me out. Yeah, I know we've been trying to work on making this happen and just super excited to have you on the show. And what was interesting was, oh man, this was probably about two years ago. I had a gentleman on my show and uh, he was a chiropractor and he was talking about the whole be your own bank thing and that kind of stuff. And he's like, you have to have Chris Noggle on your show. So I, I pulled you up on my browser and had it there just as a placeholder, remember to contact you. And then I remembered my, oh, I think the browser crashed one day and I lost it. So I didn't have it and so it kind of went out of sight, out of, you know, remember to contact you. And then a good friend of ours, while we were out in uh, Utah, yeah. um, connect, we sat down and had dinner, connected us. It's like, you guys gotta be, he's gotta be on your podcast. You guys live near each other and everything. I'm like, heck yeah, let's make this thing happen. That was awesome. And, and so putting that out there from a couple of years ago, I, it was that intention. And so and it's just interesting how things work and how it all gravitated back together. So so that's crazy. I didn't know that because I remember meeting you when we were out in Utah. Right. But I had no idea a couple of years prior, somebody said, you got to get this guy on your podcast. So, well, here I am. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So get give us your background. I mean, I know you've done like your professional athlete and done everything from pro snowboarding and surfing and a lot of cool things like that. But when did you get started as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so my upbringing is very common to a lot of people. It's a lower working class family. Okay. My dad was actually an alcoholic and they split. So my mom raised me and it was wow. pretty hard on her. I mean, sure. but uh, that's what made me who I was. She always taught me to dream and she taught me simple, basic things that she had. So when I was you know, I always worked. From 14, I worked on a farm, and at 16, I got a big boy job at a restaurant. I'll never forget it. It was this Italian restaurant. I was so excited, and my mom was proud I got a job. And I remember the, the owner of that restaurant treated me so badly, like to the point where degrading me to a level where I was clinically depressed. Mm-hmm. My grades fell in school. I, could, I felt like I could do nothing right. Everything around me. I, and I, I, never ha- I was always an upbeat kid. So like when sure. I was at this point where I felt useless, I felt like I could do nothing right. I didn't know what was going on. And I remember one day, I'd been thinking about this, and one day I'm like, I'm just gonna quit. 
And I come into work, he does the same thing. He sends me into the cooler for a, something and it wasn't there. He did this all the time. He'd send me in knowing it's not there. And then I'd be in there for what felt like forever, but probably five minutes, come out, let him know. He'd ream me and then go in there and then magically bring it out and say it was in the exact place. Maybe I was blind, but that day came and I quit. But in my mind, what I didn't know is I was actually quitting. That day I quit trading hours for dollars. I came home to my mom thinking she's gonna be so upset and I said, mom, I'm gonna start a clothing line in the basement. It's gonna be called Fat Clothing Company, P-H-A-T. Back then, this is 1992. Yeah, I mean, I'm dating myself a little bit. Like, I guess I look a little younger, but 1992, I started that first company in, in mom's basement. And um, how it happened is I bought a dozen t-shirts. I brought them to school with me to my art teacher, Mr. Mahalski. He did all the screen printing sure. for the, the, the school. And I printed all those shirts with him, sold them out of my backpack. Then my friends came up and, oh, that's really cool. Here's the design. I'd make their design and then they'd help me sell. So I was building a sales team and it was the backpack sales team. I didn't even know I was doing it. So that's how I became an entrepreneur. But it's spun because that clothing line, I remember getting the idea, okay, I'm selling it to my friends, but school, you only have a reach of so right. many. Yeah. So then I wanted to get out there. I started doing concerts and setting up booths and realizing, okay, I can pay these guys a hundred bucks to let me set a booth up. And one of them said, hey, you should sell to other stores. And I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. So I researched it and I went on the road. Now I was an up and coming snowboarder. My dream was to be a pro snowboarder. Sure. So I was always traveling to Vermont and on the 90 all the way to Vermont, there was a ton of skateboard snowboard shops. Now GPS didn't exist. That's the you know, yeah, road map. So like funny. Paper maps. We like, didn't have cell phones. We didn't have there was GPS. No internet, really. I had an atlas, and on that atlas, and I still have that atlas. It's kind of cool. I, I circled all the places I would go, and I started stopping in. Right. And the first one, man, sweaty palms, so nervous, but the guys bought. You know, they'd buy a small order, 200, 300 bucks, and and I did this every time I'd go, and that's how I built up the brand. And then I had it across the Eastern Seaboard. I went to this one guy's shop, it's called Hardpacked in uh, Canandaigua, New York. And the guy bought my stuff and he was so excited about it. He's like, hey, you know, I know you're a good rider, let's go ride. And I'm like, thinking to myself, all right, I kind of get it back on the road. I don't, when's the shop closed? Oh, we close at five. I'm like, I, I can't wait. And he's like, well, let's go right now. <laughs> and I looked, Josh, I looked around and I'm like, there's no one else in the shop. I'm like, well, how's this gonna work? He just locked the door. I was like, I had this idea and I'm like, you can just shut this place down. <laughs> uh, now listen, I'm like 17 years old. Right. Like that's a foreign oh, thing yeah, to me. That's... And we went snowboarding and had the best time. The only thing I could think about from that moment on is I got to have my own shop. And I, I started the ideas, took fat clothing. And then I guess back then I thought I was the man. So fat man was the name of the shop idea. And, and I wanted to open in the Lockport mall, this rinky dink little shop, shopping mall. And I needed 70 grand to do this. Let's go back. I'm 17 and I need 70 grand right. for this dream oh, yeah. to be real. Everybody in my family that I talked to about it said, you're crazy, except for my mom, said, you're crazy. You're, you'll lose all the money. My dad said, you got to get a job at the factory. Almost like trying to get me to conform to his lifestyle, right? right? My dad never went after his dreams, but he wants me to conform to his failed dreams. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think a lot of us deal with that in life. You know, sure. we're forced to conform to what other people tell us to do. Well, Luckily, I didn't, and luckily, I had that one unconditional person in my life, and it was my mom. When I told her, she, you know, she always checking on me, and I said, "Well, I, the bank said I need collateral, and my baseball card collection wasn't enough." So she put her house on the line. Wow. The only thing she had in, in the world was how she got in the divorce, and she put it on the line so that I could get that that seventy thousand dollars SBA back loan. And Fat Man Board Shop opened November '94. 
and it's still open today. I sold it in 2010. So that was like my early days of becoming sure. an entrepreneur. And I didn't become an entrepreneur for the reasons a lot of people do to get rich. Right. I did it because it was just a great way where I could still snowboard, skateboard, but yet make money to, to support my travels. No, that's awesome because, and even back then, it, it wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. It's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna own a business, or I'm gonna, it's not, entrepreneur wasn't the buzzword back then, because I know just, I started my company at 14 in the early, or mid, mid to late 80s, and you know, had that all through high school, and, and sold that at, you know, right before I graduated and everything, and so right around 91. And, but it was like, for me, it was like, oh, okay, I wanna own a business, you know, I, 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 but it was for a need for myself, kind of like you, because um, I wanted to buy a computer at wholesale and save half the price. <laughs> so that's how it all kicked off. And then all my friends were like, hey, that's awesome. I'm like, well, I can get you a better deal on it and you can go get it over here. So that's, you know, so it's kind of that need, like you're like, oh, you know, t-shirts and yeah. you know, they kind of just hustled into, you know, um, you know what, what took you down the whole path and your store and everything else. So that's it's awesome. so funny. I mean, to me, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but that was a long time ago. Right. But you're right. I mean, it wasn't, I don't even know if I knew what the word entrepreneur meant until I got into like a, a small business development center. Like it was, it was just, I want to own a business. And yep. owning a business wasn't because I wanted the status. It was just, it was for, to solve a problem. Like you right. wanted a computer at wholesale and I just wanted to get to the hill and be able to afford doing it without having to deal with that owner of that business degrading me. I mean, interesting story. That's awesome. I guess, what did you take away from back then? Because obviously it was a long time ago in the 90s and we didn't have the internet and we didn't have the GPSs and we had to use roadmaps and everything else to figure stuff out. You know, I think one of the things you mentioned though, uh, before we head that way is the people that you surround yourself with and you know, everybody basically are like, no, that's not going to work or you need to, you know, you need to follow my dreams or my path. And, and I think it's super important the people that we surround ourselves with as you've kind of got, you know, grown over those years, how have you started to do that for yourself? A lot of ways, and I'm gonna go back to those mm -hmm. days. So back then, like I was wrestling, and most people would wrestle because that's just, or, or play football or whatever sports you sure. did, for one reason or the other, but I did it to get in shape for snowboarding. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, and I had this, this you know, clothing line, and I remember my coach coming up, because wrestling went through the winter, and my coach wanted me to go to varsity, which meant I'd have to travel on the weekends, and I told him I can't. And he didn't understand it. And he said, well, why? I said, because I, that's when I snowboard. I have to go snowboard. And he says, oh, you, you give up that silly idea. Like, you, you need to do this. You're a good wrestler. Like, and, and I remember right there. It, it was just a split second. I told him, I said, all right, well, I'm not going to be wrestling anymore. Mm -hmm. And I did. I quit wrestling because my dream was more important than falling into somebody else's. So, sure. so that, fast forward, friends, family members, my dad, and, and I love my dad. My dad not an alcoholic anymore but you know I remember when he went when I went through that time I mailed him up an envelope with cats in the cradle I still can't listen to that stupid song without crying and I've had to throughout my life chasing your dream is a tough thing it sounds so sure. simple when you think about it but it's really a difficult thing because everybody else they won't understand your dream they won't understand what you got to do to make your dream happen so they're gonna try to get you to do what they say they're gonna try to say that's a silly idea that's not gonna work or not support you in the way you would think. So you have to change who you surround yourself with. That's been my family members. That's been my friends. I've had to you know, refine friends. Um, even now, like my two best friends growing up, my one, I know I don't, don't, don't I just don't talk yeah, to them anymore. Right. I mean, 
And I'm not saying there's anything bad with that, but the, what his mindset was and where I wanted to be didn't align. And he's a great guy. But if you're going somewhere, you got to put yourself around the people that are there or going the same place you are. Because right. if you're in the crowd of the people that aren't getting where you want to be, you're never going to make it. For that's sure. super hard because it's always the ones you're closest to. Yeah, yeah and that's, that is the hardest part because it is the closest people sometimes that, always. that push, push you down or try to hold you down. And not intentionally most of the time. Oh, they always want what's best for you, but <laughs> their perception of what's best for you is right. is based on their life, right? And if you're going to take advice from somebody, don't take advice from somebody that hasn't gotten where you want to be or doesn't think the same way as you are. Again, I, I always go back to Earl Nightingale. You ever follow oh, him? Yeah. Strangest Secret in the World, yeah. right? Best 20 some minute. Absolutely. <laughs> and I would listen to it repeatedly. In there, there's a study by a doctor and, and the study was just there's success and there's failure. And what's the difference between the two? And Earl Nightingale became infatuated with like, what is success and how do you right. get it? Through this whole study, they did it with 125 year olds. They took 125 year olds and they basically asked them all, are you gonna be successful at the age of retirement? And they all said, you know, resounding yes. And of course I'm gonna be successful. I'm gonna be a millionaire or a multi-billionaire, whatever, I mean, in sure. today's world. Fast forward, just look at social security statistics. Only five of those 100 eager, optimistic 25 year olds are financially successful. And out of 100, only one is wealthy. So what was the difference? Creation. Those five created their own path, their own financial destiny, their business, whatever they created. They created something and they didn't let other people get in their way. The 95, and this is very relevant for today, and I tell this to kids when I speak in front of like different schools and stuff. Failure is conformity. If you're going to conform to other people's failed dreams, right. failed realities, failed financial futures, then that's where you're going to land. Yeah. So when you're really picking it, creation is the ultimate. I mean, think about it. Like you, you even just look at God and Jesus. I mean, yeah. creation, that's it. That's For the sure. answer. But that's all. It's a simple solution <laughs> in a very difficult world to create. It is. And I mean, I think today at least creation of your ideas is much easier than it was 20, 30 years ago. 100%. I mean, we, with the internet and the speed to market and everything that you can do and how fast you can test ideas, I think it's huge. I mean, you can test an idea in seven days and have a good idea whether it's going to work or not. Whereas before, it would take you months or years sometimes to really find that. And, and I think, you know, growing up when we did and starting a business when we did, you know, we didn't have the speed that we do today, right? Mm -hmm, right. But I think that helped us. Because it helped us to understand that slow is fast. Right. I think today, like a kid or a millennial or a teenager, anybody that wants to start a business, they can just like this. They can scale it as fast as they want. But the problem is they're all chasing that fast riches that mm -hmm. they want to get rich quick. Right. And therefore they miss the journey. They miss the real secret. And that is slow is fast. And when you rush wealth, when you try to get rich quick, you're poor next. Yeah, no, and I think too, I mean, he's like slow is fast. I, my boys, they would do a lot of training with special ops and guys like that. And so when they're, when the boys were first learning to shoot, they were, because I got twin boys, they would teach them, you know, and everything is, everything is slow. And the slower you don't, don't rush it because the, the, the faster you go, the more off target you're going to be. That makes perfect sense. And so it's just like business. I mean, the faster you go, a lot of times you're going to be off your target. Yep. And that's why a lot of the companies that raise so much capital so fast and they're trying to spend and spend and spend and spend and all of a sudden they're off target. And they wonder why two years, 
they're still burning a million dollars a month. <laughs> so, so uh, obviously, growing up as an entrepreneur, you know, you set yourself up. You're, you know, got into, um, you know, pro snowboarding and everything. What was kind of that next journey for you um, in your entrepreneurial career? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I rode that dream life for mm-hmm. a little while. I was a pro snowboarder. I had my, sh- my shops, which I expanded. I had a couple locations. And I'll never forget, I had just landed from California for a trade show. And I'm driving down the, the thruway to my newest boutique store in Orchard Park, New York. And I remember on the radio hearing of a plane hitting a tower. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, the poor guy. Oh my God, I hope nobody got hurt, right. except for, well, I knew the pilot did. But then I heard of another one. So I remember this like it's yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know it was a commercial airliner. It, it didn't specify. Sure. And we all know that was 9-11, and which then led into that recession. But the, the unique thing that I can tell you is that's the first recession in my life. I was 22 years old. That would have been the first recession that actually impacted my life. Right. Now let me just transition. So right now, if somebody's 36 or 30 years old, they've never felt the impacts of what we're about to go into, which is a recession. They've never felt that. Yeah, I mean, what they've been saying for the last few, what, six months? Or yeah, years, well, but, whatever they're saying, but I mean, yeah. if you just look at the signs, I mean, and that's my field, so that's, yeah. that's what I, we are headed to a real doozy. But anyway, let me come back to that period. So I got into a recession, my businesses sank like 30%. Mm-hmm. So I was forced to make some hard decisions. First thing I thought, I need a job. My buddy, that one I was talking about, worked at Little Caesars. So I went there, I'm thinking, oh, they'll, they'll, they'll hire me as a delivery driver. I got a car. And they said no. So I didn't know that people ate less pizza during a recession, but I guess they did because they, they didn't hire me. So I put my one-page resume out there in the, the world, and it was on one of those websites. And uh, the only people that got a hold of me was Wall Street firms. So I want to just preface this. Remember, I'm a punk snowboard kid. I snowboard, I skateboard, and I surf. I wear hoodies every day and beanies. I put my resume out and the only people that get back to me, they're not snowboard skateboard shops or, or snowboard right. skateboard companies, they're Wall Street firms. I'm like, I've never put a suit on in my life. So I went on the first, re- first interview and I got the job. Wow. And uh, I thought it was crazy. I'm, I, I remember the interview like it was yesterday. He had obvious, obviously watched that movie Boiler Room, okay? Because he slid the keys, I don't remember if it was a Porsche that he had down the table. He said, kid, if you work at this firm, you're gonna have one of these. I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so I didn't end up staying at that firm, but I went to another firm. And that, that was the next phase was the Wall Street world. And uh, it was a weird time. You know, if there's any ever any time anyone watching this has felt not comfortable in their own skin, mm-hmm. that's how I felt. I had a suit on every day, a black, a gray, or a navy blue suit, and I'm not comfortable. So I'd literally go to the office at the firm, and then I'd come to my store. I'd strip it all off. I'd put my hoodie back on just to do that. And then this one brand, Volcom, I still wear it today. They made suits. And because I had a shop, I could get access to this limited edition Volcom suit. So I started buying their suits just so I felt comfortable in this uncomfortable place. But in this uncomfortable place, being an entrepreneur, I witnessed something. I'm sitting in the bullpen. It's just like what you see in the movies. And I'm watching the big offices around where these guys make high hundreds, if not millions. And I'm thinking, these guys don't work that hard. They get there at 8.39, they leave for two hour lunches and they were gone 4.35 o'clock, gone, ghost town. And I said, all right, well, if I want one of those offices, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do everything they're unwilling to do. So I started getting there at 7, 7.30, get all my paperwork done. During lunch, I couldn't really afford to go to lunch in the early years, so they'd leave, I'd pound the phones. And guess what, people answered. And then when they'd leave, five o'clock, I got in my car and I went to see people at their kitchen tables. 
I did this for years. I became the number one new org rep, and then I became number three in the office in a very short period of time. Now, bear in mind, I was still snowboarding and skateboarding. Right. Yeah, I was still snowboarding professionally. Yeah, no, oh, no, no. I didn't abandon my dreams here. I just, I just expanded what I was doing. And you know this to be true, but a lot of the people watching maybe don't is something miraculous happened there. And it wasn't anything I could have ever made happen. You see, when I got into this Wall Street thing, I was making real money. And before mm. I was making child's play sure. money, but it was, that was all I needed. And I stopped working in my stores because I couldn't, couldn't be there every day, right? right? I'm in the office. I was working weekends. And not being in the stores meant that I had to put somebody else in charge. I had to empower managers to take over what I did. Sure. And at first it was, it was like, you guys are never going to be able to do this, right? You can't fold shirts as good as me. There's no way you can grip a skateboard like I can. And those snowboards don't even think about the fact that you can do this as good as me. You know, that's an ego. Most yeah. business owners, they have that, that right. whatever that complex is. And I had it, but now I couldn't do it. So I stopped working in the store and I started working on the store. Stopped working in the business and I was now working on it. And I was doing all the marketing. I was doing events. I was kind of finding ways to motivate my managers to do more and my store sales went up. Mm. So now I'm making a bunch of money over here. My business is starting to do better and I'm not even there. I'm like, wait a second. Ding, 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 like something, uh, <laughs> something just happened and it was something I couldn't have organic. I don't think I ever organically would have put myself sure. in there because I was just, that was my world. But now it wasn't and everything started falling into place. And I have applied that same strategy throughout my life with all the different businesses I've done. That's awesome. One of the things you mentioned during that time, obviously, was with the recession, and then we had the 08, um, you know, the real estate and everything. And now it's kind of, they're like, okay, we're in one, or we're moving to one, whatever's going on right well, now. Well, we're in one technically, it depends on who you're listening to. You listen to DC, they just change the, the target sure. and the rules, but no, yeah. we're in a recession. Okay, so we're in one now. A lot of entrepreneurs watch the show, uh, families, things like that. What should we be doing to obviously protect our capital, to uh, potentially grow our capital, and, and obviously with our business, some businesses may be down in a recession right now, some may be stagnant, and some may be obviously hopefully thriving as well. But what are kind of some of those different things that we need to start to look for and plan for? Should do everything. You should do everything that I didn't do in 2008. Now, in 2008, I remember that. Before that, I had bought a dilapidated building. I was developing it into my new like prime store for Fat Man to move into, and then 2008 hit. I was highly leveraged. I was massively in debt, and then the recession hit. And when the recession hit, my income in my financial business went way down. My stores went way down. So I almost went bankrupt. If it wasn't for my girlfriend of the time, who's now my wife, paying the mortgage, paying the utilities, I never would have made it through that. So coming back to now, what, what can business owners do? First off, get your mindset right, okay? Because this is not, a recession is viewed as a really bad thing, but if you're positioned for it, sure. this will be the greatest opportunity of your lifetime. You'll be able to grab more market share in a short period of time than you could ever do spending massive amounts of marketing. But the other thing people do is they go into a recession ill-prepared. They go in with high debts. A lot of people right now are trying to build and grow and gain market share. It's a, it's a very difficult environment to do that. There's a lot of competition. You got to spend more to get small little pieces. Right. I would almost urge business owners right now to go into a preservation mode. Keep your business going. Try to grow, but don't shoot for those big numbers. Like, you know, we always want to put those big goals. Tame those back. Right. Build the war chest up. And when I say war chest, and we do this with all of our businesses, every month, 
siphon a little money into an account sitting in a different bank. And we'll talk about like how I do it, but sure. you know, with the, the banking systems, but just try to get as much money today as you can. Okay. Don't spend it. Don't go buy the new Porsche. Don't buy the new fancy Rolex because somebody said they're going to go up in value. Put the money in the bank in some place safe so that when this thing happens, when nobody else can market in your space, you push the pedal down. Think Grant Cardone. You remember back when he went through that period of time. Oh yeah. Like it was really hard. And he literally stopped spending money. He, he went into like the ultimate mode that I think most people have to, and he pushed the pedal all the way down. He pushed in when everybody else pulled back. Right. So that's what people need to prepare for. We still got a little time because okay. even though we're in a recession, it doesn't feel like one does it. Right, yeah. Because people are employed. The unemployment numbers, this is a very unique one, but it's not the only time it's happened in history. Unemployment numbers are very low. So therefore people still get a paycheck. And because they get a paycheck, they're still trying to maintain their lifestyle like they have been for the last couple of years when things right. were really good. It's a, it's a problem and you can see that problem. Savings rates in this country have plummeted. Savings accounts, the average person can't even afford a $10,000 emergency because wow. they just, they've gone through their savings they had. And not only that, credit card debts, are skyrocketing, double digits. We're the highest, we're setting records right now with credit card debt. So you can see that most people in this country are doing the exact opposite of what they should. Right. But for your audience, I'm hoping that this little piece of advice will help them hunker down, get prepared, build the war chest. And then when this all falls apart, when it feels so wrong to market, when it feels so wrong to go out there and push and push and spend money to push, that's when you gotta do it. Because that's when the best talent's gonna be looking for jobs. You gotta gobble up that talent when you can't right. get it. That's when everybody else stops marketing. You can push in, in market and get a lot of market share. This will be the greatest opportunity of most business owners' lives if they get ready right now. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been hearing the same thing. A lot of, you know, they're like, okay, cool, you know, hang tight, you know, real estate's gonna be huge. Like there'll be so many people trying to get out of their, because the interest rates are short term and they're, you know, they're jumping way up, you know, on when they reset and stuff. And, so there's going to be a ton. So where should people start to look for opportunities at? Um, obviously, you mentioned uh, one of the things that you do is moving your money to another bank account to, to put it away to kind of build up some of that um, extra cash and everything. So what are some of these different strategies that you're utilizing or that you guys are working with? Yeah. So real estate will be a great opportunity. I think it's way too early. I mean, we haven't even seen the pullback, and right. California is, but not a lot of other places are really seeing heavy pullbacks. A lot of people want to think the stock market. That's the world I spent 16 years in, but I would say stay the heck out of Wall Street. Okay. Don't put your money into 401ks. Don't put your money into the stocks. I don't care how cheap you think they are now, they're going to still go down a lot more. So I think the safest thing to do is really just put, reposition your assets so that your money can grow guaranteed, so that your money can be used when an opportunity comes without interrupting that interest. So what I mean by that, and, and I, I'm going to say it early, but it's going to be hard for your audience to really understand this. Imagine a place where you could take money, and I'm going to do this because we're doing this live. You could take this money. If I put this into a regular bank, okay, the regular bank's in control of my money. And you all know that because they lend it out, and sure. we don't get to pick and choose who they lend to. And they pay us a couple percent interest right now, maybe 2 3%. But now, if I get an opportunity to buy a piece of real estate, real estate, 40 cents on the dollar, just add some zeros to this. If I take the money out of the bank and I buy the real estate, the bank no longer pays me interest. But just play along with this. Imagine I had a place where I could put that same savings that I was putting in a regular bank. I just changed one thing and that's where that money goes. Okay. But now I'm getting a guaranteed interest rate to the day I die. Plus I'm getting dividends on that money. But the best thing is, is I get that real estate that I want to buy. 
I can take this money, I can buy the real estate, but my money actually never left the account. It's still in that account, earning a guaranteed interest rate, earning dividends. So I am now earning compound interest, what Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world. He said, those that understand it, earn it. Right. So I earn it. Those that don't pay it, the people racking up their credit cards are sure. paying it. So I'm earning it, but I'm earning it uninterrupted. Again, I can take this money and I can buy the real estate, but my money never stopped earning interest. Okay. That's the first thing. That's a foundational piece. This isn't, the, this isn't an investment. This is just changing one thing and that's where your money goes first. This is what I've learned by studying and learning from all the wealthiest families that, that you can really put your finger on. I mean, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Stanleys, Ray Kroc, Walt Disney, uh, Doris Christopher, Warren Buffett. I mean, don't not to get political, but Biden and McCain use okay. this exact same, same thing to fund their political campaigns. I hate politics, but they use it. But they're all wealthy families. Right. They understand this one thing and we'll get into it, I'm sure, but this is what I learned almost a decade ago. And it changed my entire, entire financial trajectory. Because now, if my money's always earning, right. and I find opportunities, I'm not, I now make money twice. But you see, to do this, it's not just as simple as changing where the money goes, it's a process. Okay. And you gotta, you gotta be honest with yourself. And that's a problem right now. So, I'll give you an example. If you were gonna buy a car, okay? There's four ways you can buy a car. Pay cash for it, so I could sure. save the money up in an account, and then I could just take that money out of the bank and I could pay for the car. Right. But I just bought a depreciating asset and I lost the earning potential on that money that I used. You could, so a lot of people finance a car. They don't take the money out of the bank, they just go finance it on their credit and then they make monthly payments of interest and principal for that car. And then the car still depreciates, but eventually they own the car, but they right. lost all the interest. So they, they got a hole in their boat, okay? And that is the interest going to someone else's sure. bank. You can lease a car, probably one of the worst ways you can do it, but you're paying monthly interest and principal payments, but then you gotta give the car back. And you can always steal a car, but don't do that. So those are the four ways you can buy a car, but imagine now if I found a way where I can earn uninterrupted compound interest, but now if I, got, I wanna buy that car, I can take the money out of this account, buy the car, still earn interest on the money, so I didn't lose that opportunity to earn on my money, but now I bought the car. Now the, the other thing that I gotta understand is I'm thinking like a bank here, right? I'm trying okay. to put my mindset and trying to put my actions as if I'm the bank. Because that's how okay, you gotta sure. think. You gotta be the bank if you're gonna make this work. Okay, the money right, so if I'm the bank and I take money from my bank to buy a car, what's the most natural thing I would do with anyone else's bank? I'd make payments for the car. Right. So I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I bought my wife a push gift when, we had her, when she was pregnant with her daughter. She told me that all women get push gifts. Like, I've learned that that's not a thing. But um, I bought her a Porsche, nice car. And I remember sitting there in the dealership negotiating with the guy sure. and, and you know, for this, this Porsche Cayenne hybrid and we're negotiating back and forth. And you, I, I don't know, women might do this too, but I know most men do, it's fun, right? Negotiating, you know, and then you're like, all right, well, and everybody negotiates a monthly payment. They don't negotiate the price of the car, it's the monthly payment. Right. So I'm sliding the paper of the price I wanted for a monthly payment back to him and he's going to his, sales manager, finance manager, coming back, they slide the paper. No, that's too much. This is the number I need to be. You know you can make this work. Back and forth, back and forth. Finally, he slides the paper over. I look at it, I'm like, all right, we got a deal. Shake the hand. Then he pushes all the loan documents in front of me. Now pay attention. I'm looking at the loan documents. I take them, I push them back to him. I said, we don't need these. He looks at me with this puzzled face and he says, well, what do you mean? Well, you're, you're buying the car, right? I said, yeah, but I'm paying for the car with money from my bank and I'm gonna make payments to my bank. Well, why did we just do all that? Like, why did we waste time? Because somebody had to tell me how much to pay my bank back. 
I swear, I did. it was a funny thing. Now, I knew the sales guy, so it was kind of a funny right. little thing, and, and I've been trying to teach him what I do. And at the end, he finally got it. He's like, holy crap. So you're going to make a monthly payment for that 961 every month to your bank? Exactly. Every month, I make that payment for that Porsche back to, to my bank, which means at the end of whatever term I decided, because when I'm the bank, I set the terms, okay. whatever term I decide, I get all the money back for every car. It doesn't matter what it depreciates. All the money's back for the car. And then I never had to sell the car. So when I sell it, that's pure profit. And all I did is change one thing, and that was where the money went first, and then how I use the money as the second piece of it, the process. You mentioned owning your own bank. And when I lived in Texas, um, some friends I knew down there when I had a business um, that were partners of mine were starting their own bank. And they were the super Texas guys. They lived out in El Paso. They had tons of money and tons of assets. And so you got to have, at least when they were starting the bank back then, you had to have all these assets and you had to prove you have so much cash to the bank because you have a certain amount of cash you have to keep you know, as a ratio to loan and do all these kind of things. So how did you like start your own bank like that? Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.